0: to read verses 38 to 50. Mark chapter 9, reading verses 38 to 50. Let's uh, listen again to God's Word to us. Context is that... uh, The Lord Jesus is with his disciples, and so John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung round his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's just commit our time to God in prayer. Our Father, we thank you again for these precious words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Lord, we're so thankful that we can read them and study them together now. And we, we pray, Father, in our weakness, in our limitedness for the help of your Holy Spirit, that he who compelled Mark to record these words as he did, and that that same Spirit would enable us to understand and to take in and to respond. God, be gracious to us then, we pray, for we ask in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So it was mid-December last year when we last looked at Mark's Gospel. We were studying this passage on discipleship, which runs from verse... 33 onwards where the Lord Jesus is showing his disciples that to be great if that's what you're wanting to do and that's certainly what the disciples were wanting to do back in verse 34 when Christ asks them what were you talking about on the road and they say well they have to admit well we were discussing who was the greatest I mean shall we imagine us doing that tonight who amongst us is the greatest I mean that would be quite absurd wouldn't it immature of us, wouldn't it? And yet this is what the disciples were doing, and Christ in His care of His disciples, He shows them as part of His discipleship of them, He shows them that to be great paradoxically means you become small. You want to be first, then you become last. You humble yourself and you make yourself a servant of all. You You value everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ regardless of their demographic, regardless of their age or their ability or their their social standing. But to be a disciple of Jesus means we imitate Him. Jesus who was a servant to all of us. Jesus the Savior of all of us who call on His name regardless of who they are, regardless of how he found them. That theme carried on into verses 38 to 40, where John, you remember John and James, their nickname that Christ gave them, sons of thunder. They had a bit of a temper, those two. They're easily flared up when they came to faith. John has a problem. There's someone else doing what their group of disciples did. This chap was casting out demons, but he didn't belong to their group. And John believes that man should be shut down. That man should be stopped. And again, Jesus has to disciple them. He has to respond to another wrong attitude that needs correcting as part of the program of discipleship. And we looked at that that night, that we're to stop viewing Christians of other churches and other denominations as suspect just because they don't come to our church. (laughs) They're very healthy and very welcome to meet as they meet. And those messages are on the church website. We're not going to go any further over the things we've looked at before, but it's that last verse of that theme of discipleship that really I want to use as our springboard this evening as we continue our study. Look at verse 41. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. In other words, continuing to think about greatness in the kingdom of God, but the smallest act of righteousness done For the sake of Jesus, even something as significant as giving you a cup of water, that littlest of things done, will be noticed by God. It will be seen by God. It will be honored and rewarded by Him in His kingdom. So what might seem to us as insignificant, as something not worth bothering about, matters to God. I love that scene in Matthew 25 where Jesus depicts the last day and he separates everybody into sheep and goats, the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And he says to those on his right, you know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was sick and you visited me and all of those sorts of things. And they say, Lord, when did we do that? They're surprised by these insignificant things that they gave their lives to while they were down here on earth. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The smallest of things you do for others for the sake of Jesus matters. I want to encourage you in that. It really matters. It may not be noticed by others down here, but it has surely been noticed by your Father in heaven. He misses nothing, and he cares for such things. That's what Jesus was showing in using a small child in verse 36 to talk about greatness or referring to a cup of water just a cup of water in verse 41 to talk about service to others because it's out of that context of the insignificant mattering that Christ now talks about the seriousness of sin and how we view it for others as well as for ourselves Sin matters, whatever size we may think it to be. I remember we did a children's talk here. I think Josh was involved in it, actually. I don't know if you remember it, but we asked three kids to stand at the front and to hold a glass of water in their hands. It was freshly filtered water. It was delicious. I remember drinking it. It was delicious. It was ice cold and clean. It was beautiful. I gave each of the kids a glass of water and and that morning I had gone out to our garden to where our cats often go to the toilet. And from that dirty place I scooped up a few spoonfuls of dirt and I brought them to church with me that morning. I went to the first child, I put three spoonfuls of dirt in their glass, I stirred it up and I said, go on, take a drink. And understandably, they went, no way, sort of thing. There's no way I'm going to drink that water. Look at it. It's disgusting. They had three spoonfuls of dirt in their water. But I went to the second child, and I put two spoonfuls of dirt in their glass and stirred it up. And I asked her to take a drink. And I said, it doesn't look so bad as the first one, does it? It's only got two spoonfuls of dirt in it, and still she wouldn't take a drink. Then I went to the third child. I put only one spoonful of dirt in their water. I think this was you, Joshua. I can't remember. I can't remember. But it was much cleaner looking. It was only one spoonful of dirt, you see. didn't look so bad as the others. Clearly, it was much more drinkable than the other glasses of water. So I asked her to take a drink, or him, I can't remember. But they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it still because it wasn't clean. I then offered that glass of water to the one who had had the dirtiest water, the three spoonfuls of dirt in their glass, because I I wanted to reason with them. This is cleaner water for you. It's not as dirty as your water. It is cleaner water. Would you drink it? Of course, they still wouldn't drink it. Why? Because however little the amount of dirt, the fact was it was still dirt. There was still dirt in their drink. And that was enough to put them off. And I used that sketch to illustrate what the Lord Jesus teaches here of the need for believers to take sin seriously. To take it seriously for the sake of others in verse 42, but also to take it seriously for their own sakes, verse 43 to 48. And to view having such a critical attitude towards sin as something positive, verses 49 and 50. That's where we're going tonight, taking sin seriously. First of all, let's look at the seriousness of sin for others, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck And he were thrown into the sea. This is evidently, clearly meant to be a vivid warning from the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants his disciples to take sin in others and the possibility of them being the cause of that sin, but to take it far more seriously than they did. Who is... Jesus referring to when he talks about these little ones. When you read through the commentators, the consensus of the commentators say it's not children. Rather, Jesus means all believers, since all believers are as little children. I don't agree with them on that. I don't think we can just dismiss this as being children so easily. Remember the context. Step back from the passage and, and move in closer to the passage. Remember that child back in verse 36. Look at verse 36 where Jesus takes a child and puts in the midst of the disciples. That child is still there with them. That child is still there as Jesus speaks to his disciples. So why would he mean all Christians when he says these little ones? The important detail in what Jesus says is, one of these little ones who believe in me. In other words, the child who in that context, as we saw before, A child in that context would have been viewed as, well, not worth bothering about. Children were insignificant creatures of that day, and therefore, who cares if what I do causes them to sin? Who cares? They're only children. Who cares since he's only an irrelevant, worthless child? But you see, God cares. This is the point. God cares. That child is important to God, and especially so if that child is a follower of Jesus Christ. So take sin seriously, whoever it is that sins, whether they are as a little child or they are a great, great godly sort of person. But take sin seriously. For since a small act of kindness in verse 41 will be noticed by God and receive a reward... In the same way, a small act of evil done to even an apparently insignificant believer, like a child or maybe an elderly person, a disabled person, maybe a, a foreigner, maybe someone who's English, their, their language is, is not English first, or maybe someone less intelligent than you but someone who you in your sin would typically look down upon. But if you, by some means or another, cause someone else to stumble into sin, that will not go unnoticed by God. And even you will face a reward for it. And look at the reward for it. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea. It's very vivid, isn't it? A millstone was, of course, used to grind grain. You, if it was a small millstone, you could do it yourself. There'd be a wooden shaft, and you hold it, and you, you turn it as you poured grain in, and the grain would be ground down to become flour. But Jesus describes here a great millstone. This is something typically an animal would have been used to turn. That's what Samson was given to do in Judges 16.21. His reward was to grind stone for the Philistines. What Jesus pictures here in having such a stone tied to your neck. Well the Jews knew what that looked like. The Greeks did it. The Romans did it. The Egyptians did it. This is how they would execute someone in a horrible way. Jews hated the sea. They hated the possibility of drowning in the sea. And so Jesus here deliberately uses this picture to stress the need to appreciate the seriousness of sin. That if someone causes a believer to sin, if, if someone causes a, 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 a follower of Jesus Christ to stumble in their faith, it would be better, notice that word, for that person to face something like this than what? Rather, who? God. God. Friends, As the writer to the Hebrews tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A dreadful, a terrible thing to face the living God who sees and who notices, who knows, who because we showed indifference for someone for whom Christ died, then we are showing that same attitude to the Christ who died, and Jesus says, beware, beware. Beware for your own sake, but also beware for their sake. Beware for their sake, for how eternity might look for them if what you did in causing them to sin causes them then to walk away from the faith altogether. I think that's why the apostle Paul was so concerned in 1 Corinthians 8. You see there how he's writing about the weaker believer. This is someone with a a weaker conscience. Maybe they are young in the faith. They they haven't yet understood. They haven't yet matured to to realize the new liberty that they have in Jesus Christ and uh, and, and therefore uh when they look at what others are doing in their maturity, they might consider what they do to be sinful. Paul writes in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 8, he tells the more mature Christian, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So, that person, that more mature brother, is the cause of the weaker brother stumbling into sin. For him, it's sin. For the mature brother, it's not. His, his conscience is clear. But he doesn't care for the weaker brother, you see. He just wants to enjoy his liberty. He wants to enjoy what he can now do in Christ. The freedom he has in Christ. Who cares about him? And Paul does care about him, you see. As Jesus tells us to. Now that exact example Paul gives us, I don't know how you apply that in the biker context, eating food offered to idols. I don't know. But, you know, there are other things we could talk about. If anyone sees you who have knowledge, I don't know. We bring up the old taboos, pubs and clubs and all of that sort of stuff. I don't know. But the point is, it's not just about you enjoying your liberty in Christ to do what your conscience allows you to do before Christ. It's what you think of others and what impact your behavior might have on others. So to you before God, your conscience is clear on doing such things. And I don't want to judge anybody here tonight for doing anything that isn't clearly forbidden in Scripture. But for someone else, for a fellow believer whose faith is new, it's young, it's tender, someone whose conscience is still learning, they're not settled yet on certain things, we have to be aware of them. Younger Christians less mature Christians. that when they see you do what maybe they struggled with in the past, they see you do it and think maybe, oh, it's okay then to do that. And they then become consumed in it again. Be careful. Be careful. Paul goes on to write in verse 11, by your knowledge, this weak person, and listen to this word, dis this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak you sin against Christ therefore he says if food makes my brother stumble I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble now that personal sacrifice of Paul's for someone else. We'll come back to you later on tonight, but but can you see what Christ is saying to us here? How we need to think more seriously of sin. Sin in others, and certainly if we're the cause to the effect of the sin in others, whoever they may be, the call is to make sure it, it's got nothing to do with me got nothing to do with you. Rather, the opposite. We should encourage them away from it and encourage them towards greater holiness in Christ. Well, we move on because we now also hear our call to take sin seriously in ourselves, verses 43 to 48. I've marked these words in my own Bible here. They're in pink, so they stand out to me here, but you see there how The Lord Jesus continues to use that phrase, causes to sin, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these, verse 43. If your hand causes you, verse 45. If your foot causes you, verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Tear it out. Seriously? Jesus? I wonder what the disciples said. What look came on their face as they heard Jesus talk like that? Are we literally to mutilate our bodies in the hope of stopping sinning? That's what some have thought apparently Origen of Alexandria did in the third century. This was a man who struggled with lust. He was plagued by lust for women and so he did as these verses say. He literally castrated himself. I don't think it dealt with his lust, though. I still think he had a lustful heart, though. You see, the problem isn't with the hands, ultimately. It's with the heart. It's with the heart. I could cut off both my hands and struggle. I could pull out both my eyes and struggle. It's in here that's the problem, you see. So what does Jesus mean here when he says, pull out the eye or cut off the hand or cut off the foot? Well, again, he's not being literal. I don't believe he is. Under the Old Testament, uh, self-mutilation was frowned upon. But I think Jesus is again depicting something of the seriousness of sin. He's deliberately using an extremity to stress the seriousness of the matter. In other words, however important, however helpful, however necessary it may appear that you have a hand. I could never give up my hand. I could never give up my foot. I could never give up my eyes. I could never give up my smartphone. I could never give up my internet access. I could never give up my magazine subscription. (laughs) I could never give up. I need those things. Jesus is saying to us that if those morally neutral things are, in fact, what you know, often become for you the causes to sin, then come on, grow up, wise up, be a disciple of Jesus Christ, compare what awaits an unrepentant sinner, you are better off without those things than to keep them and to keep sinning through them and then possibly spend eternity in hell so weigh up which would you prefer weigh up the costs weigh up the benefits and make a decision I don't believe, I still don't believe Christ is being literal here about cutting off hands and feet and so forth, but I, I am convinced he is being 100% literal about the seriousness of sin and our, our need to, to do all we can, by the grace of God, to do all we can to stop it. Sinclair Ferguson put it like this, we are faced with two alternatives, kill sin or sin will eventually kill us. This is the choice we have, you see, between claiming to belong to God's kingdom and therefore living as someone who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ and therefore who now belongs to God, a God most holy, we sang at the beginning, a God who hates all sin. We either belong in that camp or we view our sin lightly now as something not all that important, really, anymore. Well, you know, I'm accepted. I'm forgiven. Jesus has died for my sin, so why not sin a little bit more? It's not that serious a thing, is it, if I look again at that website? It's not that serious a thing if I go to that place again where I know I always come away knowing I haven't honored God when I was there. Friends, that guilt is your conscience telling you chuck it. Drop it. Let it go. This is something that for you the Lord does not want you to have. This is for you why Christ suffered and died. So that you and I could be spared the penalty for it. That's the the language that Jesus uses here. I'm not going to go into what it all means. I think it's clear what unquenchable fire means. He's depicting hell there. Are we really thinking that, well, it doesn't matter now if I sin or not since Christ has paid the price for my sin? I don't like being black and white on certain things, but I will say this, that's black and white tonight. Friends, casual sinners are not born-again believers. Casual sinners are not born-again believers. Rather, in fact, they are deluded religious people who one day, sadly, may well hear those awful words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 7, 23. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And then what happens? Well, they face, as as Jesus describes here, they are thrown into hell. Look at how he describes in verse 48 of Mark 9, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If you have a central column in your Bible, you'll see those words that Jesus quotes are the very last verse in the book of Isaiah. The very last thing that Isaiah says to the people of Israel. Again, it's a picture that God gives Israel to warn them of the consequences of taking God lightly. Of not taking God seriously. Of not taking the covenant that they belong to seriously. And therefore, if you sin casually as though it doesn't really matter. Well, look what awaits such a person. Jesus deliberately uses that word here to again warn us of taking him lightly. When he came... To save us from sin. From all sin. The big sins. And the little sins. Christ suffered and died. So we could be free of all of it. Well thirdly as we close. What what shall we do then? What are we to do in light of what Jesus says here? I have three things just quickly as we finish here. First of all think about the cross. Is that hymn when I survey the wondrous cross? It's deliberately calling on Christians to sit and ponder the cross of Jesus Christ. That Christ Jesus suffered and died for sin. For all our sin, for every evil thought, for every evil deed. But but Jesus Christ, the, the sinless one, the beloved Son of God, He came into our world and He bled. And he died. And so are you now then just going to casually keep on doing what caused Christ such great grief? Think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane and where he faces the weight of what lies ahead of him. And he, his heart is broken. He feels near to death. Are you going to just keep sinning? When you've looked at him like that, really? Think about the cross. Let the, the thought of a crucified Christ burn into your conscience for you then to say, no, I, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to chuck it. I'm going to throw it. I'm going to give it up. And I'm going to pursue greater holiness, greater purity. Not to save myself, but because He has saved me and called me to be holy. That's why I'm going to do it. Secondly, apply the principle of what Jesus says here. Yeah, there may be things you need to pluck out. There may be things you need to cut off get rid of those things that you know are problematic for you and I've stressed the word you mm. on this, this slide here because what is a problem for me may well not be a problem for you okay and vice versa but if you are led by God's spirit to recognize that this whatever it is for you is, is just a means that leads you to sin friend lose it let it go. And compare the, the hassle or the bother of not having a mobile phone, for example, or of having certain websites blocked. Consider the hassle of determining where places you won't go, where others maybe go. Compare all of that the cost of the sacrifice you make to the possibility of spending eternity in hell. And think, which one really matters at the end of the day? It would be awful to consider someone spending eternity thinking, why didn't I just let it go? Why couldn't I just let go of my precious thing that to me in life I could not let go of, whereas now in hell... What a fool I was to treasure it so highly. Friends, don't be a fool. Let it go. And maybe you need help to let it go. Maybe you need to talk about it so we can help you let go of it. But don't be ashamed to let go of it. Don't be embarrassed by it. When you consider the cost of treasuring it and continuing sinning in secret maybe. And then finally, as we close, see the sacrifices you make for the sake of purity. Consider however costly, however painful they may be, but rather than focus on the pain of losing them, focus on the benefits of pursuing purity. I think that's what Jesus hints at here in verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I don't want to spend, it's really another sermon. I don't want to go too long into this. But obviously, he's talking about fire and salt, isn't he? Comes up a lot in those two verses. These were two substances, two properties, let's say, related to sacrifice in the Old Testament. Salt was always added to sacrifices. It was a, a way of uh, conveying the the covenant, the purity of the covenant to which israel belonged and Of course, fire fire was either something that consumed the sacrifice or it was something used to purify something in numbers thirty one for example, the people of Israel are told that when you Capture things from other people, whatever can be passed through fire to make it clean, do so. It was symbolic of purity, and and Jesus seems—I don't understand it fully, okay—but Jesus seems to use those two properties here to to show that when we take sin seriously as believers, we make those difficult, those painful sacrifices in our lives. For the sake of purity. For the sake of holiness. Those sacrifices are viewed as most holy to God. They're precious to Him. They're pleasing. They're acceptable to Him. Discipleship is a whole life thing. Like the whole burnt offering put on the altar. When we come to Christ, we're, we're laying ourselves on the altar like a sacrifice sprinkled with salt. And I think what else he means is otherwise, if if we're not pursuing holiness, if we are claiming to, to be Christians but living casual lives of sin, then there is no distinct difference between us and the rest of the world. There's nothing in us that says to the world, there is another world to come. There is a judgment seat before which all of us must stand. But if we're just treating sin casually and flippantly, well, what use are we? What witness are we to a dying world? So look to the benefits in seeing the seriousness of sin. Make the sacrifices, yes, that Whatever it is that you need to make, whatever I need to make. And maybe those, those sacrifices, those painful cutting-offs and plucking-outs, maybe they change with season. Maybe an older person has different sacrifices to make than a, a younger person and vice versa. But rather than focusing on, oh, I've got to give it up, focus on, yeah, but what am I doing it for? I'm doing it that I might be more useful to my Savior. And I'm doing it that I might more clearly reflect His glory. His sinlessness. Because He saved me. And now, I belong to Him. May God help us do that tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we Confess, Lord, how lightly we see our sin, how flippant, how casual we are. And we we ask for your forgiveness, Lord. Forgive us that we don't see it as Jesus sees it. And we pray, God, for sharpened vision, for a more tender conscience again. Lord, for some of us, maybe... Our casual sin has hardened our conscience somehow. We don't feel as you feel. We ask again for mercy, Lord, please. We ask again for a work of the Holy Spirit upon us to, to shave off the hard scar of sin from us and to let us feel again how much our sin matters to you. Father, thank you for the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that it's not our performance in this that qualifies us for salvation, but again, it's because of grace unmeasured, vast and free, that we still have hope after hearing a message Thank you for Jesus and His garments of righteousness that He dresses in all who will believe on Him. Help us now in wearing those robes to honor our Savior in how we live towards others and in our own lives. Lord, hear us, O God, we pray, please. Forgive us of all our sins. We ask this in Jesus Christ, our Lord.